So, welcome to church today in the flurries. Hard to wrap your head around, isn't it? Well, you are welcome here today. Would you stand and join us for a few moments? <clears throat> and let's start this morning with prayer. Father, we come into this place and we do so with a sense of humility. We ask that in our attitude of humility, you would find hearts that are open, hearts that are soft. We wish to be spoken to by you. We wish to be changed. We even wish to be corrected if we need to. Father, we strip aside titles. We strip aside preconceived ideas of who you are and what you should be doing in our lives. And instead, I pray that you would find each of us to be humbly saying, we want to lift you up. We want to be changed by you. We want to bring you praise, and we want to leave at the end of our time together being renewed and refocused and having something new. We thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen. We are your church. We are your sons and daughters. We've gathered here to meet with you. We lift our eyes, we lay our hearts before you, expectant here for you to move. With thy hands to the heavens alive in your presence, oh God, when you come, so pour out your spirit, we love to be near you, oh God, when you church we are your sons and daughters we've gathered here to meet with you we lift our eyes we lift our eyes we lay our hearts before you 
Amen. Good morning. So nice to see you. You braved the storm. You're here. You're worshiping. You're excited. Good to see you. For those of you who are at home or elsewhere, we're glad you joined us too. Before you're seated this morning, why don't you just say hi to somebody and then be seated this morning. Thank you. Thank you. You may be seated. Thank you. Well, we're glad that you're here. Welcome. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for being here. And uh, we're glad that you are. We just have a couple of announcements, things just to remind you of that are upcoming. It just, I don't know about you, but I find that time is moving so, it seems like it's moving so quickly these days. I don't think that's scientific. I think scientifically, it's moving at the same rate it always has. But it just seems like from a scheduling standpoint, you just, you just blink and a week is gone and we're, we're into another one. And so, you know, the Easter season is upon us and next Sunday is Palm Sunday. And then, of course, the week after that, we have Good Friday and, and Easter Sunday. So just in keeping these things in mind, I just want to remind you, we will be doing a Good Friday service in person this year. And uh, it'll be the first Good Friday service we've done since uh, you know, COVID has become a reality. In fact, uh, I was thinking about it this morning, the first ever video service we did here at Evangel was the Good Friday service. And, uh, but this year, we'll be back in person, and it will be in person only. We will not be live streaming uh, the Good Friday communion service. It'll be in person only, 10 o'clock on Good Friday morning. So if you can be here, we invite you to join with us. And of course, uh, traditionally here on Good Friday, uh, we receive a benevolent offering. Uh, it's our primary benevolent offering for the year that we're able to use those funds to help those in need as needs arise throughout the year. So just keep that in mind as well. Uh, some sad news. On Tuesday, uh, we, we received word that uh, Pastor Lori Gibbons suddenly uh, and shockingly passed away on Tuesday morning. And uh, I know for many of you, um, Lori was known to you. Um, it seems like... Uh, about 10,000 of us in this world thought Lori was our best friend, and uh, he, he was just that kind of guy, our former district superintendent, and actually uh, we had the privilege of having him preach here uh, last summer. And um, so we're praying for, for Debbie and the boys and the family, but for those of you who weren't aware of that, just, just to pass that on uh, to you this morning. At this time, I'm going to ask our kids if you'd make your way around the perimeter to this door over here. Your volunteers will be waiting there for you. Uh, just pray that you have a great morning. Carlene, handing it back to you. God bless you as you continue to worship this morning. I just want to speak the name of Jesus Over every heart and every mind Because I know there is peace within your presence I speak Jesus I just want to speak I just want to speak the name of Jesus till every dark addiction starts to break Ring there. 
Our scripture this morning is found in Matthew chapter 26. We're reading verses 47 to 56. While he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priest and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. 
Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, Do what you, have, you came for, friend. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think that I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? In that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching and you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. You may be seated. Thank you, Carlene, for leading us so beautifully this morning and worship team for also um, being a part of our service this morning and leading us as well. Personally, I don't have much interest in award shows like the Oscars or the Grammys or the People's Choice Awards. I'm just not that interested. It doesn't, I'm just not interested in it. And so award show nights at our house means that I get the night off to do whatever I want to do because I don't want to do that. Now, such was the case last Sunday evening with the Oscars. I just went off to do my thing. However, <laughs> the controversial drama that took place during this year's Oscars has been the forefront of most newscasts all week. So even uninterested people like me and perhaps some of you have been made aware of what took place. Last Sunday evening, a presenter, a comedian, Chris Rock, uh, he made an inappropriate joke about another actress, Jada Pinkett Smith, specifically about her a medical condition that she has. And he was trying to generate a laugh at her expense when another actor, Will Smith, who happened to be her husband, uh, and would later receive Best Actor Award, took exception to the fact that his wife was the brunt of an inappropriate joke and walked up onto the stage and slapped Rock in the face and shared some colorful words. A lot of drama. Now, the consensus response to Will Smith's slap was shock and definitely the wrong response in the situation. The joke was inappropriate, but the response was also inappropriate. What really caught my attention was the catchphrase that summed up the night for Will Smith, and it was this. This night will not be remembered for the fact that he won it. It will be remembered for the fact that he lost it. Now, there's no question that meekness would have been the better response. Last week, we launched our Easter series entitled, A Rock and a Hard Place. Ironically enough, that's where Will Smith found himself on Sunday night, I might add. I know. Dad joke. And we're tracking with Peter through 
the first Easter and the valuable lessons that he had to learn, and we said most of them he learned the hard way. And so we began last week with the lesson that Peter learned or supposedly learned about humility. Today we're going to be focusing on Matthew 26 and the arrest of Jesus, identifying the lesson Peter learned about meekness. Meekness. Now, meekness is a lot like humility. Humility is the absence of pride, esteeming others above yourself, putting another person's interests ahead of your own. Humility is most often defined as your attitude towards others. Now, meekness is your behavior towards others, your conduct towards others. It's about controlling one's own power. It's about restraint. It's not aggressively insisting on one's own rights, but rather focusing on one's duties and responsibilities. And so simply put, meekness is how humility is demonstrated towards others. Meekness is how humility is demonstrated towards others. They're very closely related. Now what we will see in our passage today is this. In the kingdom of God, our response to opposition is not aggressively insisting on our own rights, but rather focusing on surrendering our wills to the values of the kingdom. To the values of the kingdom. So let's unpack our scripture this morning. We'll start with the betrayal. Our scripture takes place today in a place called the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus has been praying, and the disciples have been sleeping, and Jesus finishes praying and announces to his sleepy disciples that the hour has come for him to be betrayed. Now, while he is still speaking about this to them, we're told, Judas arrives with a large crowd that has been sent by the chief priests and the elders of the Jewish people. And they're armed with swords and with clubs, baseball bats, if you will. And Judas is leading this mob. When Matthew tells us this story, he refers to Judas as one of the 12, one of the 12 disciples. He's reminding us, his readers, of the significance of this betrayal that one of Jesus' closest of the 12, in the, in the, in the closeness of the 12 disciples, one of his own, is about to betray him to this mob that he's leading. We're told, in, and, and some of the information this morning comes from all four Gospels kind of piecing it together. We're told that he had approached the religious leadership offering to lead them to Jesus in exchange for 30 pieces of silver. 30 pieces of sir, silver at this time was the price of a slave. And so he negotiated the, that Jesus' value was worth the price of a slave. It was important for Jesus to be arrested in a secluded area. He was very popular, and whenever he was teaching and, and ministering during the day, he, he was surrounded by large crowds. They were following him everywhere, and so they needed to minimize any potential of an uprising, any attention to the Roman authorities. And so Judas knew the patterns of Jesus and his disciples, especially when they're visiting in the Jerusalem area. He knew that they would be in the Garden of Gethsemane that night. It was pitch black in the garden. It was important that if this arrest was going to be made, that they got the right man. 
they had to get the right man. So they predetermined a sign ahead of time so that Judas could ensure that Jesus was the one that was arrested. And the sign that was decided upon was a kiss. Now, a kiss was a common greeting in the culture amongst family members, between rabbis and their students, and later even amongst the body of Christ as they would greet each other with with a holy kiss. It was an act of affection. And so we see here that Judas has twisted this act of affection to become a, a symbol, an act of betrayal. After the kiss, Jesus asked him, friend, what, what did you come for? What are, what are you here for? Just get on with it. Do what you've come to do. And without that, at that moment, without any delay, we're told that the men stepped forward, the mob stepped forward, they seized Jesus, and they arrested him. Now, this is the part of the story that usually we focus on at Easter, but you know I'm going to focus on something different. So, so this is the part that really, really got my attention as I was studying the scripture, was the reaction. The mob, we're told, were made up of Levite temple guards, likely some chief priests thrown in there, a few elders, some servants. And it seems Peter quickly forgot the lesson on humility that Jesus had taught him in the upper room just just hours before when Jesus washed his feet, showed him submission and humility, and, and certainly what Peter is about to do doesn't flow from an attitude of humility. His, his behavior is not a demonstration of meekness by any means. We're told that Peter pulled his sword and swung his sword, slicing off the ear of a servant. Now, I believe it's John that tells us the name of the servant, who was Malchus, the servant of the high priest. Now, I suspect that Peter was not a trained swordsman. He could probably fillet a fish pretty easily, but he's likely not a swordsman. And so my guess is that he wasn't aiming for the ear. He was probably going for something much more substantial. He had greater ambitions, I believe, than the ear, but likely missed and grazed the the servant's head. Now, I'm not sure why Peter reacted in this way. I don't know why he did that. Perhaps the words of Jesus spoken in the room a few hours earlier over dinner that Peter was going to be one who would deny Jesus. Maybe he's trying to prove his loyalty and say, hey, let me show you. No, 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 I'm not going to, I'm going to stand up for you. Maybe that's what it was. But most likely, I think Peter was responding in a way that was common during the Roman occupation of Israel known as the way of the zealots. Zealots were members of a Jewish sect that were known for their opposition towards the Roman occupation of Israel. They were an aggressive political party concerned with the preservation and national religious life of Jewish people. And so zealots rallied the populace so that they would rebel against Roman rule and with the hopes of overthrowing the Roman rule. Now, within this group, like any groups, there, are, there were extremists who focused on terrorism and, and even assassination. And so there was a wide range of, of people that identified within this way of life, this, this way of thinking. They longed for the Messiah to come because they believed that the Messiah would lead them into battle against these foreign forces 
and take Israel back for God. That's what they believed. And using arms and weapons and political influence. They believed that that's the role the Messiah would play. That's why Jesus wasn't really accepted by them because he was nothing like they were looking for. Now Peter, like the zealots, saw the sword as a way of deliverance out of this present trouble. This is a problem. Jesus is about to be arrested and he wants to oppose this. He wants to make this go away with the use of his sword. Thirdly, rebuke. Immediately, Jesus rebuked Peter. He said, Peter, put your sword away. That the kingdom of God is not like the kingdom of this world. It's not one. The kingdom of God is not one with swords and politics. It's one with surrendering our wills to the will of God. It's one by surrendering to the values of the kingdom. It's one in meekness, Peter. It's one in humility. It's one in love. It's one in sacrifice. It's one in surrender, ironically. Now Luke tells us that Jesus responded to Peter's aggressive act by healing the ear of Malchus. He's cleaning up Peter's mess here. Jesus is not leading a violent and political rebellion. He said... Peter, if you live by the sword, if you draw your sword, you will die by the sword. The kingdom of God is not about imposing our will on others. It's not about that. Jesus said, Peter, if it was about that, if the kingdom was about swords, if it was about politics, if it was about imposing one's will, don't you think I would just call out to God and God would send 12 legions of angels to fight against our enemies? A legion was 6,000 soldiers. Interesting, historical records show that Rome did not even have the equivalent of one legion of soldiers present in this geographical area during this time. Not even one legion. And Jesus is using this high number, this high number to indicate that if kingdom values were swords and opposition and politics, that God would wipe out all of the enemies quickly and easily. If that's what the kingdom was about, this could end very quickly. But in doing so, Jesus said, God's plan, God's kingdom would not be fulfilled. Now, I would like to tell you that the, you know, Jesus gave this lecture, this teaching on meekness and how the kingdom of God is different. And the disciples heard what he said and they said, yeah, you know what, Jesus, you know that you make a good point. Okay. Yeah, we, we get it. We're, we're with you. <laughs> Do you notice the last verse I read? After he finished giving the speech, it says, and they deserted him and fled. They deserted him and fled. They wanted to fight with their swords. They wanted to fight the kingdom battles with the world's way or not at all. If we can't do it that way, we don't want to do it at all. And so that dark night, Jesus is left alone, alone to suffer alone. So, 
my application this morning doesn't have a bunch of points. It's just, it's just a big run-on point that one leads to the other. So hope you can follow me and enjoy this journey we're about to go on. I suspect some may not, but who knows? I believe we all would agree that the church, the church is a community. It's a community of Christ followers. And this community of Christ followers are, are living their lives centered around common values. And the common values are the values of the kingdom of God. They're not values that we created, and we create lots of values. But they're not the values we created. They're, they're values that were taught and modeled by Jesus. Those are the values that the church, the body of Jesus, rallies around, that are centered on, are, are the values that are taught and modeled by Jesus because we're told in the Gospel of John that Jesus is the Word of God, right? Jesus is the Word of God. And so sometimes when people say to me, well, it seems like the Bible is conflicting in what it's saying here. What should I do? Well, you know, uh, Jesus is the Word of God. So, so look at him. What did he say? What did he teach? What did he do? That, that's a good example for us to follow. Because he's the word of God. And so Jesus made it clear in all of his teaching that there are two kingdoms. There are two kingdoms. The kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God. And the values represented in each are most often opposed. Most often they're opposed. Now I would suggest, and I think you would agree, that it's challenging as a follower of Jesus to try to live your life based on the values of the kingdom of God in a culture, in a world that prioritizes worldly values. It's, it's not easy to live in a kingdom way in a world that doesn't value kingdom values. And so Jesus is teaching us in this scripture today that our response to that, the response of this community of followers to worldly values, how we respond is really, really important because how we respond should reflect the kingdom. Now, like Peter, I believe we're often inclined to fight kingdom battles in worldly ways. We want to fight kingdom battles in worldly ways. In the first 300 years of Christianity, the church, followers of Jesus, faced intense persecution, torture, bloodshed, re rejection. Yet, the church advanced in meekness and in humility and in love and sacrifice and surrender just the way Jesus had modeled for them. It's a dark era in church history, but a very successful era, but it came at a significant price as, as Christians were dragged into arenas and eaten by wild animals and killed by, by, by you know, for entertainment. I mean, that's, that's the three, first 300 years of church history. That's, that's our reality. Yet the church advanced, and it grew, and the Spirit of God was moving. But in the early 300s, Constantine, the emperor of Rome, began to show favor to Christianity. In the Roman system, it was believed that victory in battle was linked to the help of a god or multiple gods. And so 
as he observed what was happening in his empire, he recognized that the Christian God was acknowledged as being very powerful. This, this seemed like a very powerful God, that such great things could be accomplished under such incredible persecution. And so Christianity, under his leadership, became the official religion of the Roman Empire. The world's most powerful empire, the most powerful empire, joined with the church, with the followers of Jesus. And when that happened, Christians instantly went from being persecuted to being elevated, from being killed to being protected, from being doubted and questioned and accused of things like you know, that they were incestuous because they called each other brother and sister, to that they ate, they were cannibals because of the communion they celebrated, you know, with the body and blood of Christ, to all of a sudden becoming official. The church was official. Everything changed. Now, we call this the beginning of an era in church history known as Christendom, with Christianity being the dominant religion. Christianizing the world through partnership with Caesar. That's what was happening. Now, a lot of history passed, and the Roman Empire declined, but the church still was a very strong political power, leading up to Christendom eventually, this whole concept of the church in partnership with government eventually extended to North America and many other parts of the world through colonization. As European countries claimed new territories, they declared that Christianity, and they were claiming these territories, some for their homeland, some for the church. Sometimes you might wonder, you look at South America and you say, why does all of South America except Brazil speak Spanish? Well, because the Pope said, this is what the Spaniards can, territory they can conquer, this is where the Portuguese conquer, and so on. And because Brazil sticks out, it fell to the Portuguese. So they speak Portuguese. The rest speak Spanish. And so you have this colonialization happening and declaring that Christianity is the dominant religion of the new world. New territories that eventually became nations became known as Christian nations, with Christian values being central to law and government. Now, if you trace, if you trace church history, you'll see that in the last century, Christendom, this partnership of government and church, has faded significantly, resulting in Christianity losing its central influence, losing its power and its control. And the reaction to that over the last few decades within North American evangelicalism, I believe, is very similar to what we see of the zealots in Jesus' day. They want to take back their nation for God. I want to take, we're going to take back our nation for God. And rather than using swords they set out to engage in politics with the goal of electing individuals who share their values so they will in turn influence legislation resulting in the return of power and influence to Christianity. I mean, that's really what we're seeing within North America. And we also see certain leaders, which I dare not name, elevated and supported by Christians for no other reason than they are willing to support these so-called Christian values. And so Christian people will elevate 
leaders because they believe that these leaders will, will make sure that Christian values are enforced. And so the reality is that many of these leaders use Christians. We need to understand that, that many of us are being used within the political system by being our values being appealed to so that they can secure a position of power. We see that all around us all the time. I believe what we see within North American evangelicalism today is an attempt to fight kingdom battles using worldly ways. And the truth is, meekness and humility and love and sacrifice and surrender, Jesus values, kingdom values, are not as appealing to the North American church in general as is the use of power and influence and control. They're not as popular. We're not as drawn to them. I believe the church's insistence to fight kingdom battles using worldly ways to bring back the benefits of Christendom is negatively impacting its ability to carry out its mission and mandate. And I tell you, as, as a pastor in, in, within the you know, Christian denomination, I have grave concerns for the church in the Northern Hemisphere in what we see. Because I believe that we have drifted away from kingdom priorities and there's some significant change that needs to take place. I would agree with Beth Moore, who recently made this statement. I think right now, Jesus is trying to reach us, the church, with the gospel. I agree with that. Because I think before we're ever going to be able to reach a lost and dying world, there's a lot that has to be fixed within the church itself. And I believe Jesus is trying to reach us with the truth of the gospel of the kingdom of God. Russell Moore, no relation to Beth Moore, asked this question. What if people don't leave the church because they disapprove of Jesus, but because they've read the Bible and have come to the conclusion that, it's, that the church itself would disapprove of Jesus? Ooh. Ouch. Sadly, I believe the church's focus and commitment has shifted from the kingdom values taught by Jesus and is directed more toward a return to Christendom. We are fixated on a return to Christendom and less focused on the return of Christ. We are more passionate about the return of Christendom than we are with the return of Christ. We want the power back. We want the influence back. We want, we want control back. We want to go back to what Constantine gave the church 300 years after Jesus established the church. And we are more fixated on that. And we are more better known for that than we are in anxiously awaiting and preparing for the return of Christ more focused on the return to power and influence and control and less focus on meekness, less focus on humility, less focus on love and sacrifice and surrender. So may I suggest today that I believe the loss of Christendom is not really a loss at all 
I don't think it's a loss at all. I believe the loss of Christendom is an opportunity. It's an opportunity for the church to return to its roots and rediscover its mission and its mandate and rediscover the truth of what the kingdom of God is all about and to spend less time trying to advance the kingdom through the ways of the world and more through the ways of God. I've heard a desire and I've expressed it myself many times, a longing for the church to return to what we see recorded in the book of Acts. And what most of us are referring to is the miracles and the outpouring of the Spirit of God on his people and moving and and conversions at alarming rates. But failing to remember that the book, Book of Acts church thrives not with control or with power or with influence. It thrived with meekness and humility, and love, and sacrifice, and surrender, and persecution as they were empowered by the Spirit. Let's be careful what we're longing for because when we say we want to be a New Testament church, we're longing for an incredible path of surrender and meekness and humility. And perhaps Beth Moore is right. Maybe God is calling the church to repentance in our time. The book of Revelation puts into perspective, like the book of Revelation is complicated. And a lot of people make it even more complicated by misunderstanding what it's intended to be and making it something it isn't. But in its simplest form, in its simplest form, the book of Revelation puts into perspective that there's a battle between two kingdoms. The kingdom of the world and the kingdom of God. And in the book of Revelation, the kingdom of the world is represented by an arrogant beast and other characters, but primary character, this arrogant beast who, who celebrates power and greed and materialism and politics and bloodshed and evil as a means to authority and victory. That's the one side. And the beast and those who align with the beast hold swords in their hands. On the other side, you have the kingdom of God. Represented by what? A slain lamb. A slain lamb. A voice has spoken, says, look, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And when I looked, I saw what? A lion? No, I saw a lamb. A lamb who had been slain. Not just a lamb, a slain lamb. A slain lamb who celebrates instead meekness and humility, love, sacrifice, and surrender as the path to authority and victory. And does he have a sword? Yes. But it's not in his hand. It makes for good preaching to say, when it says he has names on his, you know, I've heard the the preachers preaching, you know, he's got tattoos on his legs and he's wielding the sword. No, he isn't. That's not what it says. The sword is never in his hand. Where is it? It's in his mouth. It's in his mouth. It's never in his hand. Because the kingdom of God is not like the kingdom of this world. The sword is his mouth. It's his authority. And in the end... Only the lamb who was slain is victorious, is worthy 
In Revelation eleven fifteen, we read, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. Mic drop. That's it. That's how it ends. It's not the end of the book, but, but that's how it ends. And so the question for us today is this. Which kingdom do we want to be a part of? Which kingdom are we aligning with? The kingdom of this world which imposes its will with power and greed and so-called freedom and selfishness and politics? Is that the kingdom we want? Is that the kingdom we want to align with? Or do we want to align with the kingdom of God that is modeled by one who was meek and humble and filled with love and sacrifice and surrender, who became victorious by laying it all down. Is our greatest longing, worship team, you can come back, is our greatest longing a return to Christendom, to power and influence in culture so we can legislate morality? Is that our greatest passion? Or is our greatest passion the return of Jesus Christ? A lamb who was slain, who will usher in the kingdom in his fullness. In the kingdom of God, our response to opposition is not aggressively insisting on one's own rights, but rather focusing on surrendering our wills to the values of the kingdom. And we're going to sing a song. And interestingly enough, the song that Carlene selected today is based on Matthew 26 that I preached on today, but it's the beginning of the chapter. It's where the woman comes and breaks the alabaster box and pours out this priceless, valuable item on the feet of Jesus as preparation for his burial. And what you see beautifully painted. And when we talked about this morning what song you were going to sing, I started thinking about this. So this is for free. This is bonus material. What you see in Matthew 26 is the opposite extremes of how valuable Jesus is. To her, he was worth everything. All she had, priceless. And to Judas, his follower, one of the 12, hand-chosen, hand-picked, he was worth the price of a slave. Because one represents the value of Jesus in the kingdom of God, and one represents the value of Jesus in the kingdom of this world. Would you stand with me this morning as Carlene leads us? This alabaster jar is all I have of worth. I break it at your feet, Lord. It's less than you deserve. You're far more beautiful, more precious than the oil, the sum of my desire. 
That's a powerful prayer in itself, that song. We are going to go to prayer as we conclude our service this morning. And we have a lot of needs represented in our congregation right now. And so we're praying today for a number of people. We're praying for Gina Cree. Gina recently had surgery for cancer. On Friday, had her first chemotherapy. We'll be doing chemotherapy over the next few months. So we're praying for her, for God's leading, God's healing in her body, for a good result. We're praying today for the Lynn family, Bell Smith family. Some of you may be aware that Doug uh, entered into palliative care this week. And um, the family is just spending time daily as he's literally just fading. And um, just praying for Loana and for the family, for strength and peace and God's presence with them as they journey through this difficult time. We're continuing to pray for Edith. Continue to pray for Carl, who's recovering from surgery. Continue to pray for Todd as he's ongoing his treatments. Is Emma here this morning? That's great. We've been praying so much for Emma, and she's here with us this morning. We're so happy that you can be here, that she can be here. So let's look to the Lord in prayer this morning. Father, we come before you. And Father, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would sincerely search our hearts and our minds this morning. That your Holy Spirit would would point out to us anything and everything that may need changing in us. Because Father, we don't want to be like the disciples in our scripture this morning, having heard all that Jesus had to say, just decided it was better to flee and just go their own way. That's not what we want to do this morning. We want to hear what comes from your mouth, from your teaching, from your example. And we want to apply that to our lives and say, we're with you. We follow the Lamb. We follow the ways of the Lamb. We long for the return of the Lamb. And we humbly submit ourselves to living kingdom life here on earth in the midst of a hostile and broken world. Father, this morning we lift up before you those who are looking to us for prayer. We pray for Gina today. We pray that you be with her in this few-month journey of chemo treatments, and we just pray that you would help her, strengthen her, and we pray that at the end of the day, the report that we hear is a good one. And so, Lord, we pray in the meantime for your peace and your presence. Lord, we pray for Loana today and for the family as they, Lord, just day by day anticipating these moments when their dad will and husband will go to be with you. Would you bring peace, strength to their lives? May your presence be so real to them, helping them, guiding them. We lift them up before you this morning. We pray for Edith who needs a miracle today. We pray for Carl who needs recovery and healing. We pray for Todd who needs a miracle. We celebrate that Emma, 
a living miracle is here in our midst this morning, but still needs your touch day in and day out as you lead and guide her life. And so many others who may be here this morning whose needs we don't even know or aren't even aware of. And God, I just pray today that you'll come alongside and do what you do best and you bring healing and strength and support to our lives. Help us to support one another as we go through these difficult times. And as we prepare to leave this place this morning, Lord, may we go with a fresh commitment that you have called us into the kingdom for such a time as this, that we would live out what you have taught us your kingdom looks like every moment and every day of our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being here this morning.